If uh, clapping's not your thing, maybe you could say amen to this. Jesus has risen from the dead. Yeah, that's a good truth. If you can't say that, maybe you will be able to by the end of the service. I, I hope to help you with that. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Romans chapter 5, or maybe you have it on your phone or on your iPad. If you don't own a Bible, there's uh, free Bibles in the back of the auditorium. We want you to be sure and pick one up when you leave today. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. If you're watching online, welcome. Really glad that you're streaming with us. You guys might not know this in the auditorium, but there's between three and 400 people a week, three and 400 people households that watch online with us in the 11 o'clock service. So we're multiplied by those that are in here. And, and I just want to welcome you to join us this morning. I'm looking forward to going with you into Romans 18, where we left off at uh, last week, Romans 5:18. But before we do that, I'm going to pray with you and before we do that, I'm going to help you get caught up on where we're at. If you haven't been part of the Roman study, or maybe you haven't been here in the last couple of weeks, I don't want you to feel like you just walked into the middle of a movie. So let me help you get caught up on what Romans 5 is all about. In, in very clear terms, Paul has laid down some understandings that it's absolutely crucial for us to grasp, but there is an arrival time of sin on this planet. It's absolutely crucial that we understand that there was a time when there wasn't, and there is now a time when sin is ruling over this planet. And Paul made this case in the first five chapters of Romans that there's things that are wrong here. You can see as a result of sin being around us. You don't have to look very far. Broken attitudes, broken relationships, broken priorities, above all, the broken relationships between man and God. But God makes it very, very clear, as we've seen in Romans, there is the way of having a relationship to God restored. There's a possibility that you can get back into relationship with Him, but it can only happen one way. And He makes it very, very clear. As a matter of fact, you find God in John 14 saying essentially this very same thing. It's Jesus talking. And he makes a declaration. Many of you know John 14, 6. You see it on the screen, but this is essentially what Jesus said. He says, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And if you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through me. No one gets to the Father except through me. I especially want to bear down on the phrase that he said, I am the life, and what he meant by that. We'll see that come out in Romans 5 this morning when he declared, I am the life. So according to Jesus' own words, if you want God, if you want heaven, Jesus is your only access point. He's the only way. Now that's very, very hard news if you believe that you can get there through your own work or through your own merit or through your own method. It's especially hard news if you live in a pluralistic society, such as we do, a society that believes that there's many paths to God, you just have to find which one you want to be on. That's really hard news when Jesus says, there's no set of mental gymnastics that you can do that can change what I say. I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. So the Bible loudly proclaims, no one seeking contact with God is able to do it on their own. As you read the Bible, you then find that Jesus is not some tribal deity, as though the Buddhists have their own God, and the Muslims have their own God, 
and the Hindus have their own god or gods. Jesus says there's only one, and if you want to get to him, you've got to come through me because there's one Lord and there is one God. And the Bible goes on to say, at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That will help us understand what Romans 5 is all about. So as we pick up in verse 18, I'm going to ask you just to pray with me that God would open our hearts, that we would receive what he wants to say to each one of us individually. Let's pray together. Father, we recognize that what we're about to do is a very difficult thing. Not only taking something that was written in another time and in another language 2,000 years ago that you declared is your word. And it's, it's difficult for that reason, but it's also difficult theologically to understand and grasp. And so, God, I ask that you would do the supernatural and that you would allow those who are in this auditorium and those who are streaming the message online and those who will later this week, that we would be affected by what you say. And it can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit who guides us and leads us and teaches us. That's what you promised us. So we come before you in humility. And we bow our, our head physically. We bow our hearts openly. God asking that you would speak to each one of us. Every man, every woman, every student, every child. That we would hear from you in ways that we cannot grasp on our own. Open up our hearts now, Father. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So verse 18, Romans chapter 5 says this, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Now, last week we saw in verses 15 and 17 through, uh, that Paul was essentially laying down this pattern of balancing Adam against Jesus. If Adam this, so much more Jesus this. Adam did this. Jesus did this. And do you notice the careful balancing as you look at the verse this morning? Look at verse 18 very carefully, and what you see is one transgression, one act of righteousness, condemnation, justification. All in Adam, all in Christ. He's using this balancing back and forth. Do you hear the contrasting elements? Just as condemnation spread to everyone, meaning we're all infected with sin. Just as it spread to everyone, so pardon is offered to everyone. Now before we go to verse 19, I want to drill down into just part of verse 18 with you. Especially that part in the last component where it said it resulted in something. The one act of righteousness, it resulted in justification of life to all. Now the word justification you immediately see is set against condemnation. The two are like bookends and one's working against the other. But in this case, justification means way more than not imputing sin. It means more than the opposite of condemnation. It's more than setting aside the hostile condemnation that everyone came under as a result of sin on this planet. Verse 18, look at it really closely. The result of justification is life. The result of justification of life. I can help you picture how Paul is presenting this by using a very simple illustration that's recent in my mind. Uh, five weeks ago, six weeks ago, I was in Africa on a medical missions trip, and I was teaching a group of pastors while the medical team with us was serving individuals in, in the slum area of the Kawangwari. 
Now, when you're in a third world country, um, especially in this area of Kenya that we were in, you're very, very anxious to get back to the United States of America, right? Because you're in a third world country and you experience everything that they have. And while your heart goes out to the people that are there and you love serving them, the reality is you really do want to get back to the land of promise, okay? Because, you know, just trust me, the roads are much better here and the, the food is better, okay? And there's a lot of things that are better. And so every person who travels internationally thinks the same thing. When they get on the plane, in my case, flying out of Nairobi, you begin thinking, do I have my passport? I, I hope I have my passport. And when you get to Amsterdam, it becomes visceral. You begin going through your carry-on bags thinking, where is my passport, right? Because you've got a layover in Amsterdam. And in our case, we land in Detroit Metro Airport, so we're flying across the Atlantic Ocean, land in Detroit Metro, and every person does the exact same thing if they're coming from another country and they want to enter the United States. They're digging for their passport at that point. Like, I want my passport because I want to get back in. See, it's not enough to land on the runway and taxi up to the tarmac and be released from the jet. That's all good. But until you stand before the customs agent and you hand them your passport, you haven't yet been accepted in. You haven't yet been let in. This word justification that we're seeing here, this justification of life, we're being told that Jesus is more than just releasing us from death. There's more going on here. It's letting us into the eternal life of the ages to come. So Jesus is your passport. Jesus is the one that lets you stand before the customs agent, if you will. And that customs agent, I hate when they do this, but they look at you as though you're a criminal, right? Looking at the picture, looking at you back and forth, and deciding, okay, it's really the person there. I'm going to let them in. And they say every time, welcome back to the United States of America. And you go, oh, man, God, I want to kiss the ground. I'm so glad to be back because it's the land of promise, right? To stay on the airplane is one thing. To be let into the country is entirely another thing. Jesus is your passport because justification comes through him, and he gives you access to the life with God. Now keep that eternal life thought in your mind as we go into verses 19, 20, and 21. Verse 19 says, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. You notice that Adam's sin here is called disobedience this time? If you've been studying Romans 5, you've noticed that every time he talks about sin, he calls it transgression. But now he's calling it for what it is. He calls it disobedience. It's the identifiable aspect of the one thing that we see that Adam did when he disobeyed, the one wrong thing. If you have your notes this morning, you pull them out right now, maybe look at that first Greek word or, or you'll see it on the screen. It's this word paroke. And, and it literally does mean disobedience, but it means also inattention. Now that catches your attention because if you fail to attend to what's known, there's something going on here. See, by the very definition of the word disobey, you can't disobey unless it's been really, really clear what you're supposed to obey. So Adam, that tells us, willingly, knowingly understood precisely what he was doing, meaning his sin was completely voluntary, and so he com uh, commits this transgression that we've been reading about in chapter 5. That takes me to your second Greek word. You'll see it on the screen that we looked at last week, this word paraptoma. 
And I, I told you it's like a trespass. Somebody's going down a path and they decide to slip off to the side. You might remember I used the illustration of when I was in flight school going to an area that we were not supposed to fly in flying in an aerobatic region of the airspace, and I wasn't supposed to be there. That's the thought going on here. The sin that Adam conferred to all of us as his descendants is the sin of deviation. Going where we're not supposed to go, meaning we're a bunch of rule breakers, right? We deviate from what God has made clear. Now, just as in verse 15, maybe your eyes drift up there, as in verse 15 you see the phrase, the many, repeated over and over again. The many is talking about everyone born in the human family. Every man, every woman, every child was born into transgression, except one exception, Jesus. Jesus was not born into sin. Why? Because he was born of a woman without the seed of a man. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary. So you have a virgin giving birth to a child in which the seed of sin has not been passed over into Jesus. So we have one who knew no sin, who has made sin on our behalf. So the many, Paul is saying, are everyone born into the human family, every woman, every man, every child, except Jesus. Just as the many were sons of disobedience, we see that the many were also made righteous. How? by the act of obedience of Jesus, everyone who's born into the family of God. Now, this righteousness that Paul's talking about here, he's talking about your right standing before God, the position that you now hold if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. You, you see that echoed, look with me on the screen, at 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. I just want to be real clear on this so everybody's on the same page. What we're being told is that we have a righteousness that's been credited to us as a result of our faith in Jesus. It's not talking about you living righteously, like you doing good things, like you making holy decisions. It's talking about who you are in the eyes of God, that you are righteous in His sight. You, do you know that this morning, that God sees you that way? Many people get a little bit of glassy look on their eyes at this point. It's like, really? Because I don't feel so righteous. It's not about how you feel. It's about how God sees you. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, He sees you as righteous. So I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. On the count of three, I'm going to ask you to say out loud, I am righteous. Let's do it together. One, two, three. I am righteous. Remind yourself of that. God sees you that way. Now, living righteously is completely different. That, that's living in, in holiness. That's sanctification. Here's the primary elements that Paul wants you to get down. One man's disobedience, it made everybody sinners by birth because we're of Adam's seed. God commanded him not to do something. He did it. And so the many were made sinners. But the contrast to that is that when Jesus came, he did the opposite. He obeyed and brought life, and by that, the many are made righteous. So if you have your Bibles open this morning, I would encourage you maybe to circle the word made in that verse. I want to just bear down on that for just a moment. It's this last Greek word I want to show you this morning, in, in this kathestame, not that that really matters to you, but here's the idea behind it. It's, it's got this idea of establishing something, making it so weighty that when it's placed down, it's constituted. Let me help you with thinking that through. How does that apply to you? 
Adam's deviation, Adam's trespass, his disobedience caused everyone in the human race to be made sinners. We are constituted as sinners at birth, born into sin, according to God's word. Sinners by nature. So that means you're born already separated from God, and that is not a judgment. That's just a reality. I have to say the same thing about myself. Born into sin. Because of who we are, we are in the human race. Uh, as a, a Dr. Barrett was looking at this, I want you to see his quote on the screen. He kind of summed it up really well. You'll see this quotation. Adam's disobedience did not mean that all men necessarily and without their consent committed particular acts of sin. It meant that they were born into a race which had separated itself from God. Now, in the same way, and with completely the opposite effect, Jesus' action causes those who come to God to be made righteous, to be constituted righteous. That's why I can say with you, I am righteous. Because God's Word says, I made you that way when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Now notice what's going on here. Paul's really subtle in laying this out. He's saying that instead of Jesus grasping at what Adam grasped at, you remember the temptation? Satan comes to Adam and says, do this, and in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will be as God, and God knows that you will be as God and know the difference between good and evil. So Adam grasped at equality with God, wanting to be as God, and you find Jesus doing exactly the opposite. He humbled himself. Even though he is God, he emptied himself of his God attributes and became one of us. And Scripture says this, to the degree that he even humbled himself to the point of death. Look with me, Philippians 2.8. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So the result of Jesus' obedience is the many will be made righteous. That's you this morning. If you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you're made righteous. When a person becomes a Christ follower, they're actually given an inward righteousness that actually leaks out. It bears fruit according to Scripture. If you're walking with Jesus, you're going to carry the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, meekness, self-control. Galatians says it's very clear Christians are going to look like this. So you want to check yourself. A person whose life shows none of the fruits of the Spirit better check themselves because a person made righteous by Jesus is going to live righteously. That sets us up well for verse 20. I'm really anxious to get into it, so let's go there. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, throughout this section, Paul's been laying down this contrast. Adam did this, Jesus did this, and now he completely stops. There's no more reference to Adam. What he does is he throws in the law, and he says the law was added. Maybe that's what your translation says. The law was added. My translation says the law came in. It means the same thing, but here's what it's saying. Previously, it held no place of prominence. Previously, the law didn't have an impact because it wasn't in place, but it came in and it was added. The law was not concerned with preventing sin. See, it's too late for that. Sin is already there. So what's the purpose? 
Because he says there's a purpose there. He says, so that, here's the purpose. The purpose is that the transgression might increase, and that causes people to go, what? Is God like trying to ramp up sin? Why would he do that? Why would he want sin to increase? Understand, this is a phrase of purpose. It's not that God designed the law to produce more and more sin. Rather, this is what he did. He planned the law so that more and more sin would be shown for what it is. See, people will not identify themselves as lawbreakers on their own. If you're driving down a country road and you're cruising along at 55, 60 miles an hour, you don't know that you're breaking the law until you see a sign that says 35 miles an hour. Until the law sign is put up, you don't realize that you're a lawbreaker. So he says the, the transgression would increase as a result of the law. Galatians 3.19 says the function of the law is to put a spotlight on sin, to, to bring it into the place of conviction. And it did that. It certainly showed that there's sin. There's much sin. So picture it this way. Let's imagine you can leave today and go over to the, the west coast of Michigan. Maybe you find yourself at Grand Haven. And you're on the beach. And as you walk up to the beach, you can look up and down the coast, and all you see is this beautiful gold coastline, beach sand. Now, to the naked eye, it looks gorgeous. And if I walk up behind you and hand you a magnifying glass and tell you to look closely, with that magnifying glass, you can get down and begin seeing that there's individual little grains of sand that are making up that beautiful color that's visible to your eye. In the same way that the magnifying glass brings out what is already there, sin is what it is. The law simply puts the magnifying lens on it. It makes it visible. So Paul's argument is it's God's own law, and it has an effect. It causes the transgressions to increase. Now that's the negative part of verse 20. Here's the happy part that I was really looking forward to getting into. The word but, right? It's right there in the middle. It's a big but. Is there's big buts in the Bible where God interrupts something and he says, but, it's like him saying, therefore, but, pay attention, the increase of sin is not the last word. You see the word but? It's, it's an adverse. It's an adverse in the last part to the first part. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Much more, Right? So my mind this week when I started thinking about eternity and infinity and, and this much more concept, it immediately went for some reason to Buzz Lightyear. I don't know why, okay? So you got Buzz Lightyear in the Disney movie um, Toy Story. And if you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. There's a point where Buzz is trying to convince everybody that he can fly. Now, his version of flying and my version of flying are completely different, but we'll give him flight, okay? So he stands on the bedpost of, of a bed and he yells out, to infinity and beyond. Well, I don't think there's anything actually beyond infinity, but that's where he's going. He never got an award for his intelligence, but he made a statement there that just kind of toyed with my mind this week. When you start thinking about Paul saying, much more, much, much more, much, 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 much more, in other words, you can't calculate it. There's something going on related to infinity here. He's saying, yep, there's this, this, this thing makes me ecstatic. Paul is ecstatic in this moment because he says, grace, it abounded all the more. What you see Paul doing here is he's celebrating the incomparable excellence of what he's teaching through Romans. 
The Greek word that's used here is hyperperusio. That may not mean much to you, but when you use the word hyper, maybe something jumps in your mind. When you think of a phrase being used, that child is really hyper, you're thinking like, somebody gave that kid too much caffeine, right? Or, or you're thinking, maybe that child shouldn't have had that Mountain Dew. You start thinking of somebody hyperactive. When he attaches the word hyper to perusio, he's talking about something here that is super abundant, over the top, exceeding that which can be measured. And what's he referring to? Grace. Grace super abounded. Grace went beyond measure. So yeah, there's plenty of sin. And there's a magnifying lens on it called the law. There's much sin, but much more. Much, much, much more. Much, 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 much. You getting tired of much yet? Much more, right? Much more does grace abound. See, grace is so much greater than your sin. God's grace not only surpasses what Adam did and obliterates it, it took care of all the sin of everyone who's ever lived on planet earth. God says, you just got to receive it. I'm stressing here for you the victory of grace. Paul's not minimizing the seriousness of sin. He's just celebrating what grace is. So here we come into the last part, into verse 21. And verse 21 is triumphant. Verse 21 says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I want you to see what's going on here. Paul is a master weaver. And he's pulling together all the cords of his tapestry. And he uses the phrase, so that, to remind us of everything that he's talked about in chapter 5. So that, all these things that I've told you. So the phrase, so that, becomes this clause of purpose. And here's the purpose. The purpose is that in the superabundant grace, there was a design by God. This grace is to replace the reign of sin. Because sin and death have reigned. And through chapter 5, you've seen that they have been given a personification. Think with me about a term that I heard when I was probably like in 8th grade. I don't know why it stayed with me all these years, but it did. I think I had a really, really good English teacher. But she taught me this phrase, anthropomorphism. All right, big $10 word. And it stuck with me because of the meaning behind it. It's the potential for humans to give human-like characteristics to inanimate objects. So if you're walking through your house at night and perhaps the lights are off and in the dark, you stumble into a door or you kick your toe on the trim, you might turn to that door and say, stupid door, right? Well, the door is not stupid because it has no intellect. But what we've done is we've given a human attribute to an inanimate object. In the exact same way, Paul has used a personification here of sin and death. He says they reign. They've reigned like a monarch. They've reigned. Sin has reigned in death. And that is an extraordinary statement because it reminds you of the power of those forces, of their ability to put humanity under their control. Sin reigned. Death reigned. And it had power over this planet. So in both cases, what he's reminding us of is that you and I are not dominant. We think we are. We think we're in control. But Scripture makes it very, very clear. Sin is more powerful. That's why Paul writes, sin so easily entangles us. It so easily trips us up. 
So sin reigns, and it trips us up, and it entangles us, and it reminds us we are inferior to it. And on our own, we cannot break free from sin. So sin reigns. And on our own, we cannot break free from death, and we cannot escape it. So death reigns, and death is a tyrant. It is a dictator. It is an oppressor, and it imposes its will on everyone. And this is where the message of verse 21 gets really happy. So get your happy face on. Because in verse 21, it also says, even though death reigned, even though sin reigned, in verse 21, even so, grace would reign through righteousness. See, it's God's purpose, church, that grace would be the ruler, that grace would replace sin and death. Grace reigns, and it leads to something. It leads to something I'm guessing many of you did not come in here this morning thinking about a whole lot in the last week. We're told that grace, when it reigns, it leads to eternal life. What is that going to be like? Be thinking about Jesus saying, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. What did he mean by that life? What is that eternal life? What is that going to be like? How often do you let your mind go there? I want you to go there with me for just a minute. First of all, we're told that it's a reality. It's not a reality that we're hoping for because when you read the Bible, you think, well, it looks like we're hoping for it. And I told you before, the biblical use of the word hope is this, a reality that has not yet occurred. In other words, if God promised it, it just has not happened yet. Hope in the Bible is a reality that has not yet occurred. So we find in Titus 1-2 a discussion about eternal life. Verse 2 is on the screen, Titus chapter 1. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before times eternal. So we're guaranteed, first of all, it's going to be a reality. You're going to have eternal life. Your decision is where am I going to have it at? Is my eternal life going to be with God or separated from God in hell for eternity? What do I do with a statement like that from God? He cannot lie, and he promised there is going to be eternal life. So let me ask you this question. Once you have lived a million years, have you ever considered the fact that there's no less time ahead of you than there is behind you? I'll put it this way. Based on my age here on planet Earth, I have to come to the conclusion that there's less years ahead of me than there is behind me, unless I live to be freakishly old, right? Okay. There's more time behind me than there is ahead of me on planet Earth. In heaven, that will not be true. There will never be a time when there's less time ahead of you than there is behind you. As I contemplated that this week, I really started thinking about amazing grace, and it never occurred to me before how theologically accurate that song is. Now, just think this phrase through with me and the last part of the song, amazing grace. Most Americans know it, whether they're church people or not. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, finish it with me, there's no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. John Newton nailed it hundreds of years ago. He's reading these passages and saying, there's nothing less ahead of us than there is 
behind us. It's eternal life. So I've tried to get my mind around that. Okay, how do I understand that so I can discuss this intelligently with several hundred people this weekend? And so I asked Siri. Siri? <laughs> and Siri was not helpful, let me tell you. Um, no answer. So I decided to Google it. Help me explain eternity. I got 19 million answers. And let me tell you, there's some freaks out there, okay? They got some weird answers. But one of the best descriptions I saw for starting to get my mind around it, because I need to do that. I need to fathom things. Ecclesiastes says that God has done things and is doing things that the human mind cannot fathom. And that bugs me because I want to fathom it. I want to get my mind around it. So I came across this illustration that John MacArthur used. I thought it was pretty good. And he said, if you want to begin grasping at what it looks like to go on to eternity, imagine yourself standing with a thimble on one of the shorelines of the Great Lakes and being told that with that sewing thimble, you have a task ahead of you to begin emptying Lake Michigan. Right? And when you're done, go to Lake Huron, and then go to Lake Superior, and then Lake Ontario, and then Lake Erie. And when you're done with that, go to the Atlantic Ocean, and then the Pacific, and then the Indian Ocean. You getting a sense here of what's going on? Wow, that sounds like arduous stuff, right? Like, you might be thinking, is eternity going to be boring then? Is that what you're saying? Okay, I, I have to get my mind around this because many of us just live average lives, so we think maybe that's what eternity is going to be like. Like, after the first million years, I'm going to be tired of walking on gold. Well, what's that going to be like? Because God's used gold for pavement, right? We use asphalt for pavement. God's using gold for pavement. Is it going to be boring? Here's where my mind goes on that. Angels are bigger, stronger, smarter, and faster than you and I. And they really like it there. So I'm going with that, okay? <laughs> Scripture says you can't fathom what I've got in store for you. But it's there, and it's waiting for you. So contemplate with me the most exquisite experience you have ever had on planet Earth. What is the most exquisite thing you have ever done? Now, my wife's not here this morning, so I can get away with saying this. Um, fishing in Alaska, it rates really high with me. Okay? <laughs> it's just saying, my mind goes there. But hanging out with my wife, it's, it's higher because she might be watching online right now. Okay. Um, what's the most exquisite thing you've ever done? It pales to nothing in comparison to what God has for you. How do I know that? Look with me on the screen at this passage from Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.9. Just as it is written, there are things which the eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. Do you love God this morning? That's what Scripture's saying. You you. You identify with me. You're in relationship with me. I got things for you you cannot begin to imagine. And I can imagine some pretty great things. God says, it, it can't go there. Your mind can't fathom because I've lavished my grace upon you. Just be good with that. Grace beyond measure because you see through a glass dimly now. There's a day coming when you're going to see clearly and it's going to make sense to you. But for now... 
understand this part of heaven, that God's grace exceeds all of your sin. Anything that you've ever done, God exceeds that. That's why I'm common to say you cannot out-sin God. Even if you think you've done something so horrific in your life that you've passed His mercy, God says you cannot get there. My grace superabounds. Where sin increased, grace superabounded. So here's what Romans 5 has done for us. This is the, the last weekend in Romans 5. Yay! All right, so Romans 5 has done this for us. It's put a spotlight on sin and death. And it's elevated sin and death to, to show us that with vivid pictures, it's an absolute monarch over humanity. But in the end, when you come to verse 21, you find it has been exposed and it must yield the knee to the one who is greater. The one who rules over a kingdom that will never end. God alone possesses eternal life. And He says, there's a way back to me. There is a way back into relationship with me. And there is only one way. I will make you righteous through the grace that I give you in Jesus Christ if you will just believe and receive it. If you come in here this morning thinking you can earn your way to God, maybe if I just do enough good things, I have to ask you this question. You're going to hear it a lot in the next four weeks leading up to Easter. How good would you have to be to stand before a holy God? The goodness that comes from Jesus, that alone, according to Him, gets you there. So there's this loud declaration of Jesus echoing down through the ages. It started in the first century and it continues on to 2017. And he says, you want to get to God? I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. John 14, 6. Look at the last part of it. No one gets to the Father except through me. Theological truth of Romans 5. God has just put a magnifying lens on it. I'm going to pray that you remember this this week, that if you're a person who identifies with Jesus Christ, that he already sees you as righteous, you have eternity in store for you. It's just waiting. If you're not there yet, if you haven't made that decision yet, you can do that today. You can turn everything over to Jesus. He'll forgive you of all your sin. I'm going to pray for both groups that might be represented here today. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, you have been faithful, and you are faithful, and you continue to educate us. You, you've allowed your word to become alive. You've declared that it's alive, and it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, and we've experienced that today because it has penetrated. And that only happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit. So we come before you not only in humility, but with praise on our hearts, thanking you for the reality of your word, for the truth that's declared. God, I ask that what has been examined this morning will echo in our hearts throughout this day and the day tomorrow and the day after that. And as we go into the environments that we live and dwell in, Father, let us walk boldly if we belong to Jesus Christ, proclaiming who we are and helping other people to understand who they can be in Him. Father, I pray for those who are here today that might not know that relationship yet. 
God, I ask that your Holy Spirit would be especially close to them. That they would not gently walk out of this building. But rather, Father, that they would wrestle. That the Holy Spirit would engage, draw that one into relationship with you. Thank you, Father, for showing us who you are, a God of love and mercy, but a God of righteousness also. And you are just. I praise you for these men and women and students, these children who have identified themselves as followers of Jesus Christ and whom I get to hang out with in heaven one day. God, I thank you for those who have walked in this door today, who have studied your word, and I pray that your blessing would rest upon us. Use it for the sake of your kingdom, the kingdom that our mighty king reigns over, and his name is Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope.